welcome to the reading of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier for Tuesday, December 26th, 2023. I'm your reader, Mary Francis. Um, We'll do uh, local stories from the Courier for today and yesterday and maybe pull up some weekend stories too. On the front page of today's Courier, we have a large photo of two gentlemen. One is holding a certificate and the caption reads, Sadrach Pierre receives his certificate for completing the level one English class through the World Grace Project. Um, And then the other big story on the front page is non-traditional UNI student relishes college life. So we'll start with this first story with the big photo. World Grace Project helping wave of Haitian refugees transition in Waterloo. A wave of Haitian refugees is making its way into Waterloo. The World Grace Project offers guidance, services, and support to aid them in their transition to American life and become self-sufficient. Its leaders believe there are significantly more Haitians now living in Waterloo than the dozen or so who were here at the beginning of the year. The nonprofit has helped at least 200 refugee households, of which approximately 120 are from Haiti. There are as many as a thousand Haitians who have formed their own community. Quote, if you think how, if you think of how previous migrations happened, it starts with one group, and then in two years you have as many as 2,000, maybe 4,000, said Executive Director Karen Everling. Multiple crises have befallen the Caribbean nation, according to the United Nations, and residents have flocked to the United States after President Joe Biden's administration introduced the Humanitarian Parole Program in January. Everling said many refugees find jobs at Tyson Foods in Waterloo, although a worker in Tyson's employment office said the company is no longer recruiting. The refugees are joining their families already settled in Waterloo. The executive director estimates about 75% of refugees are, quote, primary resettlement cases, meaning that they require more assistance. For instance, they may not have credit or be unable to secure rental housing, or they're waiting on work authorization permits. That's why they need the community here to support them, said Everling. It's important to note, she said, most of the community that supports them is their community. However, Broader community partnerships are key to the integration of new communities, she added. And there's another uh, photo here of a bunch of folks sitting around in a room with Christmas trees, and there's a presentation going on, and the caption is, The World Grace Project Haitian English Class Members Gather for a certification, Certification Ceremony in Waterloo. And then the copy continues, The World Grace Project is working to facilitate that support. For instance, seven Haitian refugees recently celebrated graduation from 20 days of three-hour English One classes at the M&J Caribbean restaurant in Steelsmith Plaza in Waterloo. I tell them that if they're coming to a new country, you need to learn the language. Otherwise, you cannot move forward, said Wilkin Aceline, that's A-C-C-I-L-I-E-N, who is an outreach coordinator at the World Grace Project. More than 40 people took part in classes, including instruction to assist in cultural integration and learn basics like how to use a debit card or how to get primary health care. World Grace Project 
is also helping refugees find housing and connect with social services. 47 people have been housed in Waterloo this year in partnership with the Iowa Bureau of Refugee Services. My goal is that they can start a conversation and are able to understand people in a couple of minutes, said Whistley Danger, who is a mentor in the English class. Hopefully they'll be able to find where this is and where that is, where this is and that is. Most had never taken an English class. A number of graduates agreed it was an opportunity that brought them to Waterloo. Even though I may have struggled, we had a teacher that made it easy for me, said Sadrach Pierre, who's been living in Waterloo for six months. I loved every detail because everything they taught me, I will use it in my future, said Blonda Larrier, who's been in Waterloo for about a year. Most support for the World Grace Project comes from the state of Iowa through the Iowa Bureau of Refugee Services and the federal government's AmeriCorps VISTA program. But there's plenty of local support, including a recent $25,000 grant from the Guernsey Foundation. Quote, The World Grace Project has become the resource center and is instrumental and innovative in their assistance of higher numbers of Haitians, said a supervisor at the Iowa Bureau of Refugee Services. News of what's available in Waterloo is spreading via word of mouth, she said. Refugees have also found opportunities in Des Moines and Cedar Rapids. Everling said next year an expansion of services is planned, including transportation, one of the primary barriers faced by refugees. That's why she said it's critical to provide as much education and assistance in one stop as possible. The organization has been working out of the Waterloo First United Methodist Church. You can find more information about the program at this website, worldgraceproject.org. The next story from the front page, non-traditional UNI student relishes college life. Navy veteran Carr, age 46, faces unique challenges and opportunity. Dateline Cedar Falls. Marvin Carr's first day on campus at the University of Northern Iowa. His first days were much the same as most of his classmates. He attended orientation. He moved into his dorm at Dancer Hall. He met with instructors. He was set up with an on-campus job at the Unidome in McLeod Center. McLeod Center. But Carr is not your average student. He brings decades of life experience to his classes in the social science and history education department. He's a Navy veteran, a husband of more than 20 years, a father and a paraeducator. I feel welcome here, the 46-year-old said, relaxing in his dorm room, an hour away from his family in Webster City where he grew up. I spent the majority of time when I first arrived, just walking around to familiarize myself with the campus. I like how everything is close together. It's the people, though, that make this campus so different from others that I looked at. His experience at UNI is not without hardships. His wife, Steph Carr, is still learning to cope with not having him at home. Any long marriage has ups and downs. I've been keeping strong as much as I can. My kids have been humoring humoring me enough to keep my mind sane, she said. Steph Carr works as a paraeducator for the Eagle Grove School District. Her father also was in the service, so she's familiar with military life. She views college as an opportunity for her husband. From a veteran's wife perspective, if he's got the opportunity to achieve his goals with the right help, 
I'll remain his cheerleader, she said. His eldest daughter, Allison, also supports Dad's adventure. In the beginning, when he told me, I was very excited for him. Hearing my dad going for it and get his degree makes me proud, just knowing he's going to accomplish something he enjoys and get this experience. We are all very supportive of his decision, no matter the complications of this journey, said Allison Carr. At UNI, 881 undergraduates are age 24 or older, 11.4% of the student population. Marvin Carr's advisor, Chad Christopher, says older students should not let age be a deterrent to pursuing an education. UNI has many more supports to help students with the college experience than when previous generations went to college, Christopher said. College is much more than just the academic side. It's a life experience that lasts forever. Jennifer McNabb is head of the Department of History at UNI. She enjoys working with non-traditional students. I've worked with veterans and mature students through my 20-year career in higher education, and they always enrich the learning environment for other students, McNabb said. They bring an approach to education that I find inspiring. It takes a significant commitment to return to college or to come for the first time while balancing adult responsibilities of work and family, and I admire their dedication to their educational goals. Marvin's life experiences will let him connect with students from various backgrounds and circumstances, and I am confident that will make him a success both inside and beyond the classroom. Carr treasures each new experience at UNI. When his family comes to visit, they take advantage of student discounts at the Gallagher Blue Dorn Performing Arts Center. He even plans to be part of a faculty trip to the Yucatan in May. He'll start student teaching in the fall of 2025. Before then, he plans on soaking up as much family time as he can. It makes our time together much more focused, he said. We take these moments as we can, and we enjoy each other's presence. Turning to the next page, Rural Economic Index Improves, but for the fourth straight month, index sank below neutral growth. Dateline Omaha. For a fourth straight month, the overall Rural Main Street Index sank below growth neutral, according to the December survey of bank CEOs in rural areas of a 10-state region dependent on agriculture and or energy. Overall, the region's reading for December rose to 41.7 from 40.4 in November. The index ranges between 0 and 100, with a reading of 50.0, representing growth neutral. Iowa's December RMI jumped to 45.5 from 32.4 in November. Iowa's farmland price index for December climbed to 64.0 from November's 62.0. Iowa's new hiring index for November increased to 45.1 from 44.2 in October. According to the International Trade Administration, the export of agriculture products from Iowa declined from $1.8 billion for the first 10 months of 2022 to $1.3 billion for the same period in 2023 for a 29.3% slump. Quote, almost all farmers have lost working capital with little to no gain in net worth, said James Brown, 
who is the CEO of Hardin County Savings Bank in Eldora. Lower crop yields and prices are the major cause, along with a few customers who have cattle and or hogs. Higher interest rates and a credit squeeze are having a significant and negative impact on rural Main Street businesses, said Ernie Goss of Creighton University's Hyder College of Business. He holds the Jack A. McAllister Chair in Regional Economics at the university. Approximately 13.3% of bank CEOs indicated that their local economy was already in a recession, while another 43.3% expect a recession in early 2024. Jim Eckert, CEO of Anchor State Bank in Anchor, Illinois, said, Most farm incomes in our area will be down this year, especially due to low corn prices. But most of our farmers are coming off of good years and will be all right. When asked to name the greatest 2024 economic threat for community banks, approximately 4 of 10 identified a downturn in farm income as the chief 2024 hazard. Farming and ranching land prices. The region's farmland price index increased to 67.2 from 67.6 in November. Creighton's survey continues to point to solid but slowing growth in farmland prices. Approximately 41.4% of bankers reported that a downturn in farm income was the greatest threat to community banks in 2024, said Goss. Farm Equipment Sales The Farm Equipment Sales Index for December was unchanged from November's weak number of 49.5. This is the sixth time in the past seven months that the index has fallen below growth neutral. Higher borrowing costs and tighter credit conditions are having a negative impact on the purchases of farm equipment, said Goss. For a third consecutive month, several bankers voiced concerns over economic losses of pork producers in their area, said Goss. Matthew Brown, vice president of Ag and Commercial Banking with CBI Bank and Trust in Washington, Iowa, said, still seeing significant stress with hog integrators in the area. Echoing the concern for hog operations, Terry Engelkin, vice president of Washington, Iowa State Bank, said that hog finishers are still losing money. The lower corn price is improving the situation. According to the International Trade Administration, the export of agriculture products from the region declined from $14.1 billion for the first 10 months of 2022 to $12 billion for the same period in 2023, and that's a 14.7% slump. Banking. The December Loan Volume Index soared to 80.9, up from 57.9 in November and 77.7 in October. The checking deposit dropped to a very weak 41.4 from November's 56.0. This is the 10th time in 2023 that the index has fallen below growth neutral. The index for certificates of deposits and other savings instruments expanded to a healthy 65.5 from 58.0 in November. We're glad to see the Federal Reserve tap the brakes on rising interest rates, said Larry Winham, who is CEO of Glenwood Iowa State Bank. 
time to pause and see how the re economy reacts to the current rate environment. It will be interesting to see if they actually achieve a soft landing, he said. Hiring. The new hiring index for December slipped to 49.0 from November's 49.1. Only 3.6% of bank CEOs reported an increase in employment in their area, while 14.1% indicated a pullback in hiring for the month, said Goss. Confidence. Even though the confidence index climbed to 43.3 from November's record low of 21.2, rather, Higher interest rates, deposit outflows, and a slow farm economy over the past several months continued to constrain the business confidence. Home and retail sales. Both home sales and retail sales sank below growth neutral for December and November. The December home sales increase or index rather increased to 4.3 from 32.0 in November. High mortgage rates and limited supplies are sinking the home sales index below growth neutral in rural areas, said Goss. The retail sales index for December increased to a week 46.6 from November's 44.2. Higher consumer debt and elevated interest rates are cutting into retail sales in rural areas of the region. The survey represents an early snapshot of the economy in rural, agriculturally, and energy-dependent portions of the nation. The Rural Main Street Index is a unique index covering 10 regional states, focusing on approximately 200 rural communities with an average population of 1,300. The index provides the most current real-time analysis of the rural economy. Goss and Bill McQuillan, former chairman of the Independent Community Banks of America, created the monthly economic survey and launched it in January of 2006. In turning the page, man gets prison term for mailed meth charges, Dateline Waterloo. A former Plainfield man has been sentenced to prison for allegedly mailing pounds of ice methamphetamine from California to Waterloo. Todd Allen Skalberg, age 57, who recently lived in Osmond, Nebraska, was sentenced to 21 years in federal prison on a charge of conspiracy to distribute meth following a drug conviction in U.S. District Court in Cedar Rapids on Wednesday. Following prison, Skalberg will be on supervised release for 10 years. Authorities allege Skalberg, who has prior drug trafficking convictions, was living in California when he mailed pounds of ice meth to Justin Lee Hanawalt in Waterloo between July and September of 2022. Hanawalt, age 34, who later moved to Mason City, was sentenced to 20 years in federal prison in August. The case was prosecuted by Assistant United States Attorney Nicole Nagin. It was investigated by the United States Postal Inspection Service, the Waterloo Police Department, and the Iowa Division of Narcotics Enforcement. Our next story. State says past due nursing home inspections have been halved. This is from the Iowa Capitol Dispatch. State officials say they have reduced by more than 50% the number of Iowa nursing homes that are past due for their annual inspection. 
Recently, the Iowa Capitol Dispatch reported that the state was not meeting the federally mandated standards for nursing home oversight, with some care facilities waiting up to 41 months for an annual inspection. Federal regulations require that no more than 15.9 months elapse between annual inspections at individual Medicaid-certified nursing homes. The regulations also require that collectively the state inspect all nursing homes on an average of 12.9 months, if not sooner. State records and published industry reports indicate that between October of last year and September of this year, the Iowa Department of Inspections, Appeals, and Licensing failed to meet either of those standards. Officials with the agency said on Monday, the federal standards that are now in place were suspended in the federal fiscal year that ended last September. During that time, homes were still considered past due for an inspection after 15.9 months, but the standard was not enforced. They say that in 2023, DIAL, that's D-I-A-L, and other state inspection agencies around the country were tasked with reducing the number of their past due inspections by at least 50%. DIAL officials say they met that goal to the point where only 29 of Iowa's 407 facilities remained overdue for an inspection. The agency added that it expects to meet the standard of inspecting every nursing home within 15.9 months of its last annual inspection by the end of the current federal fiscal year, which is in September of 2024. Industry records show the agency will have to step up its efforts to accomplish that goal. The most recent data published by the Iowa Healthcare Association shows how long each home that was inspected in September 2023 waited for its annual inspection. The data shows that the Good Samaritan Home in George and Genesis Senior Living in Des Moines waited more than 21 months for their annual inspection. Three others waited more than 18 months. On average, the homes inspected that month waited 15.5 months for their annual inspection, significantly longer than the federal government's standard of 12.9-month average between inspections. The delays appear to have peaked in late 2022 and early 2023, when the gap between annual inspections was on average close to 18 months. Several of Iowa's nursing homes that were inspected during the past year waited close to two years, if not longer, for their annual inspection. For example, the North Crest Community Facility in Ames went 41 months between annual inspections, the Good Samaritan Home in Holstein waited 34 months, and the Mercy One Medical Center in Centerville waited 28 months. In all, more than 150 care facilities waited 16 months or longer for their annual inspection. Between their delayed annual inspections, some of these same homes were the subject of numerous complaints that resulted in fines and citations. In early 2020, before the pandemic resulted in the temporary suspension of certain inspection standards, Dial was reported as having failed to meet the federal standard of a 12.9-month average inspection cycle every month since October 2017. At that time, 
Department officials said the bureaus responsible for inspecting nursing homes were close to being fully staffed, and the department was utilizing contracted inspectors to catch up on some of the work. A U.S. Senate committee reported earlier this year that Iowa ranks 49th among the states in its ratio of inspectors to nursing homes. The report also noted that Iowa has tried to catch up on a backlog of inspections by using temporary contractors that are exceedingly expensive, costing as much as $41,000 per inspection. Our next story, sale of Iowa Northern won't affect removal of CF tracks. This is for Dateline Cedar Falls from The Courier. The removal of railroad tracks in downtown Cedar Falls is still planned at some point, regardless of the pending sale of the Iowa Northern Railway. Iowa Northern Railway General Manager Bill McGee and Cedar Falls City Administrator Ron Gaines both say plans to remove the tracks are still being pursued. Canadian National Railway announced plans to acquire Iowa Northern earlier this month. The transaction is pending a regulatory review by the U.S. Surface Transportation Board next year. Quote, I think we should still be good to proceed, said McGee. Iowa Northern is taking a common-sense approach to taking out the tracks, once used to deliver coal to Cedar Falls utilities. McGee said Canadian National is aware of the local plans. Daniel Sabin, Iowa Northern chairman, said the future parent company is on board with the plans. The CN deal is necessary because Iowa Northern will be losing significant equity from an expiring fund of Trive Capital, a Dallas, Texas-based private equity firm at the end of the year, according to Sabine. A CN spokesperson refused comment over email and referred the courier to the press release announcing the acquisition of Iowa Northern. The announcement did not address the situation in Cedar Falls. McGee was among the officials on hand during a debriefing with the Federal Railroad Administration earlier this year after the city was denied a $9.76 million grant for the project. The general manager called it, quote, a good application for the railroad crossing elimination program, but noted that the city was victim of a very competitive program, which Gaines called a fair assessment. We were told it was a good, eligible application. We just didn't score high enough and were encouraged to apply again, McGee added. Only one Iowa project in Davenport received that funding. More than $570 million in grants were awarded to 63 projects in 32 states out of the 209 applications received for the program, which was authorized by the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law. The city applied for the grant with intentions of providing a $1.22 million match for the project's estimated $12.2 million cost that would cover the 11,642 linear feet of track. The railroad company would have paid $1.22 million. Cedar Falls Utilities was involved in that effort. McGee said there's a possibility it may bring aboard other partners in the effort to remove the tracks. He declined to name them. The track runs near the intersection of Iowa and West First Streets, 
next to the First Street McDonald's, and then down through the downtown area to Cedar Falls Utilities and an area near Pfeiffer Springs Park off of Grand Boulevard. Iowa Northern operates approximately 275 track miles in Iowa, connecting to CN's U.S. Rail Network. It serves upper Midwest agricultural and industrial markets, covering many goods, including biofuels and grain, according to the news release. McGee expects another round of railroad crossing elimination funds will be granted, but nothing has been announced yet. The city council will need to approve submitting a new application, he said, and the funding amount for that could change. And our next story, two youths rescued from icy Cedar River, Dateline Waterloo. Two youths are expected to recover after they fell through the ice and were rescued by firefighters Friday morning. The pair, both 11-year-old males, were at a pond off of Cedar Terrace Drive when they apparently crashed through the fragile ice. When crews with the Waterloo Fire Rescue arrived, one boy was in the water and clinging to a section of ice. One was up to his armpits on an ice shelf, struggling. Both were conscious. The second was laying on an ice shelf, probably 20 yards to the east of the first victim, said Battalion Chief Ben Peterson. Firefighters in cold exposure wetsuits waded in to reach the boy in the water and bring him to safety. Firefighters then used an inflatable rapid deployment craft to paddle out to the second child. We tethered the boat and belayed it back to the shore, Peterson said. People on the shore pulled them in as soon as the victim was on the craft. Both were taken to a local hospital. Outdoor temperatures at the time of the incident were in the 40s, and the pond was not completely frozen and had large sections of open water. Officials with the Iowa Department of Natural Resources cautions residents to use safety when venturing out onto the ice for fishing or other activities. According to the DNR, a blanket of snow on top of an ice-covered lake insulates the ice, and it slows the growth of ice and hides potential hazards and weak spots. River ice is 15% weaker than lake ice. Ice with a bluish color is safer than clear ice. People should avoid slushy or honeycombed ice and stay away from dark spots on the ice. Do not walk into areas where the snow cover looks discolored. And then it's got some safety tips for ice. First bullet, no ice is 100% safe. New ice is usually stronger than old ice. Don't go out alone. If the worst should happen, someone should be there to call for help. Let someone know where you are going and when you will return. Check ice thickness as you go out. There could be pockets of thin ice or places where ice has just recently formed. Avoid off-colored snow or ice. It's usually a sign of weakness. The insulating effect of snow slows down the freezing process and creation of ice. And bring along these basic items to help you keep safe. Hand warmers, ice cleats to help prevent falls, ice picks, it says wear them around your neck to help you crawl out of the water if you fall in, a life jacket, a floating safety rope, a whistle to call for help, basic first aid kit, and extra dry clothes, including a pair of dry gloves. 
then it shows two photos. Um, in one, I see the, it looks like a big yellow rubber raft. It's got a firefighter on top holding a two-edged paddle. And then two firefighters are in the water with helmets. And it shows, just from the waist down, a picture of the boy floating on the ice. And it looks like he's just wearing sweatpants and a pair of shoes. It doesn't look like he's wearing a shirt. Then the second photo shows a bunch of rescue folks gathered around the raft as uh, right there on the shore after they brought the youngster in. And here's a halfway point of the reading of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier for Tuesday, December 26th. I'm your reader, Mary Francis, and this is your reminder that you're listening to IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and Print Handicapped. You can listen to recordings of this and most of our local programs on our website, iowaradioreading.org. And now we'll turn to today's obituaries. Our first is Donna May Wetzel, that's W-E-T-Z-E-L, age 94, uh, formerly of Cedar Falls, passed away Thursday, November 16th at the Oldorf Hospice House in Hiawatha. Um, in lieu of flowers, contributions can be made to the Northeast Iowa Food Bank. A celebration of Donna's life will be held on what would have been her 95th birthday, May 18, and that'll be May 18, 2024, at the Brandon Community Center in Brandon from 11 to 3. All family and friends are invited. Our next obituary is Constance Marie Mahoney age 72, also known as Connie, passed away Saturday, December 16, at the Unity Point Health Allen Hospital in Waterloo. Um, Services will take place at a later date. White Funeral Home of Jessup is in charge of arrangements. Next is Donna Waltz, um, passed away December 20th, born 1928, uh, she passed away at her home at the age of 95. Memorial service will be held Wednesday, December 27, at the Evansdale Amvats in Evansdale at 10.30. Memorials may be directed to the Evansdale Amvats Auxiliary. Next is Dale Dean Lorenz, age 73, of Jessup, passed away Tuesday, December 19, at the Unity Point Health Allen Hospital in Waterloo. Funeral services, Thursday, December 28, First Presbyterian Church in Jessup at 11 o'clock a.m. Military rites will be conducted by the Pump Shear American Legion Post number 342 of Jessup. Cremation will follow. Um, Dale will be interred at the Arlington National Cemetery in Virginia. There will be a visitation Wednesday, December 23, at the White Funeral Home in Jessup from 5 to 7, and then uh, a Masonic service will begin at 7. Memorials will be directed to the Disabled American Veterans. Our next obituary for today is Alice White, age 79, of Waterloo. Passed away Saturday, December 16, at the Cedar Valley Hospice Home in Waterloo. 
uh, Mass of Christian Burial. Thursday, December 28, St. Edward Catholic Church uh, at 10.30 a.m. Visitation will take place Wednesday, December 27th at the Lock at Tower Park in Waterloo. That will be from 5 to 7 with a rosary to begin at 4.30. And turning to our opinions, taking a look at the political cartoon from Mike Lukovich, it shows four of the U.S. Supreme Court justices sitting at the bench. And the first thought bubble says, our next case, cookies in jars versus cookies in tins. And then there's a thought bubble coming from Justice Thomas that says, I will not recuse. Our next uh, opinion, uh, this one comes from Cynthia Allen, who is a columnist for the Fort Worth Star-Telegram. It's titled, Our Culture of Control Rejects Suffering and Brokenness. And Cynthia writes, It would take a hard-hearted person, especially one who is pro-life, to look at the plight of Kate Cox with no sympathy. Cox is the Dallas woman who became the poster child for the abortion rights movement in Texas when she challenged the state's abortion law, seeking to terminate a pregnancy after receiving a devastating fetal diagnosis. Her story is heart-wrenching and yet not at all unique. Cox entered a routine obstetrics appointment, excited to see the burgeoning life within her on the ultrasound screen. She left sick with the realization that the child she was carrying would not be with her for long. Like so many women, I can relate. During the ninth week of my third pregnancy, I saw on the ultrasound screen the image of my child at only six weeks' development. A flickering dot at its center suggested a heartbeat, which is cause for hope. But I know what a baby at nine weeks' gestation looks like. This was not it. My doctor insisted I had miscalculated my cycle and that I should return in two weeks for another look. But I knew then I was not to beat my baby this side of heaven. Two weeks later, delirious from blood loss after hemorrhaging during my miscarriage, I asked the emergency room doctor attending me, will I lose my uterus? No, she reassured me. Still, I remember being warned before entering surgery that uterine perforation was possible. Pregnancy is a beautiful and wholly natural state of being. Even in ideal circumstances, it's not without complexity and risk. Tolerance for acceptable risk is what's truly at the heart of the case involving Cox and her challenge to the Texas abortion statute. Her complaint seeking legal cover to abort her child describes how she came to learn that her child had almost or had her child almost certainly had trisomy 18 which is a condition that would probably lead to her child's premature death either in utero or shortly thereafter cox understandably was shattered at the prospect of the prolonged suffering that she and her child might face still her child's diagnosis while tragic had no direct impact on her health her pregnancy was complicated by other immutable circumstances. Her previous cesarean sections, which always increased the risk of uterine rupture during induction or natural birth, 
inducing pregnancy early, in the case of a stillbirth, would further compound the risk of complications. So, too, would a third C-section, if it came to that. Those risks, of course, would exist if her child were healthy, too. Gestational diabetes, another complicating factor cited in her complaint, would be possible, if not likely, with a subsequent healthy pregnancy. And if Cox were obese, older than 40, had heart disease, her risks would rise. But her desire to end her child's life in such cases probably would not. And so Cox's attorneys argued that in light of this blighted pregnancy, this ruined child, any risk to her future health and fertility was not acceptable to bear. Why risk the prospect of losing your fertility for a dead child or worse, a profoundly disabled one? Our society would seem to agree with that assessment. That may seem stark, an overly harsh condemnation of Cox's decision-making process, which I have little doubt was difficult and fraught. It isn't meant to be. Cox is a product of the culture in which we all live, one that wants to avoid suffering and exert maximum control over our individual circumstances. It's no surprise that most of today's social movements are framed around the primacy of the individual, our rights, and our autonomy. But suffering is part of life. It's most assuredly part of motherhood. The notion that we as mothers have agency over the circumstances of our pregnancies, births, and our children is folly. We don't. We're just along for the ride. Our calling is to carry our children through it. Sitting in an exam room, days after my miscarriage, I asked the doctor the question all grieving mothers ask. Why did this happen? Your baby probably had some sort of developmental problem, trisomy 18, perhaps Down syndrome, the doctor said. She would not have survived. It's just as well. I was struck by the reply. I would have gladly carried that child if that was the suffering I was intended to endure. I don't say that flippantly. In wake of the Cox's case, many are calling for clarification into the law. Some are berating pro-lifers for their apparent heartlessness. Others are lamenting the latest political blow that this case has dealt to the anti-abortion cause. But the pro-life movement does not have a political problem. It has a cultural one. Until we transform our collective view of suffering and sacrifice and our notion of life and love, we will never win, and we will all continue to suffer. That's from Cynthia M. Allen, uh, a columnist for the Fort Worth Star-Telegram. Our next opinion comes from, this is the Another View. This is the editorial staff from the Las Vegas Review-Journal, and it's titled, Rich paying fair share will not fix U.S. debt. Profligate spending has pushed tax receipts to 28% of GDP, the highest level since 1965. In his New York Times newsletter, business reporter Peter Coy, in September, argued that the only real solution for this nation's rising debt crisis is, quote, more tax revenue. In other words, the government needs to take more money from Americans who work for a living. Coy, to his credit, does acknowledge what many of those who hold a similar opinion rarely admit. This would require more than just the rich paying their fair share. To address a problem of such magnitude, 
the debt has now reached or rushes toward $34 trillion. Taxes will have to go up on a sizable chunk of people in the top half of the income distribution. Not just on the dastardly one percenters, mind you. Higher taxes for Americans in that top 50% of wage earners, that would include all individual taxpayers earning more than $40,000 a year. It's true, as Coy notes, that members of both parties, despite the political rhetoric from budget hawks, are loath to cut entitlements and defense spending for fear of rousing powerful special interest groups. It's also true that any long-term compromise reached between Democrats and Republicans to impose a modicum of fiscal responsibility in Washington will likely involve higher taxes in some fashion. Yet, to downplay the role of profligate spending in deepening the country's sea of red ink is to ignore a major part of the equation and perpetuate the type of fiscal imprudence that has brought us to this point. The Wall Street Journal recently reported that U.S. tax receipts at all levels of government climbed to nearly 28% of gross domestic product last year. That's up from 25% in 2019. This is the highest level since 1965, according to the report. The trend is also occurring in other wealthier nations. The increases are worth hundreds of billions of dollars in additional revenue for governments, the Wall Street Journal noted, and those are navigating an array of new spending needs. In the face of progressive dogma blaming tax cuts for soaring deficits, just a few years after the Trump tax reform became law, federal income tax collections set new records in both fiscal 2021 and 2022, hitting almost $5 trillion in the latter. But what those who turn a blind eye to the spending side of the ledger overlook is that many Americans might be more comfortable sending a higher portion of their earnings to Washington if they felt that the federal government would spend those contributions wisely and efficiently. As it stands now, they have no such confidence. An actual commitment to fiscal responsibility, spending restraint would be a start. Cries of poverty from the federal government evaporate under even cursory scrutiny. No matter how much cash flows to the U.S. Treasury, it's never enough, nor will it ever be. And that was another view from the Las Vegas Review Journal. And our final uh, editorial piece here comes from Froma Harrop, that's H-A-R-R-O-P, who uh, lives in New York City and writes for the Creators Syndicate. And she writes, It's being said by conservatives and liberals, America faces a crisis of affordable housing, and the way out of it is to build more houses. Wouldn't it make sense, wouldn't it make more sense, rather, to first understand the extent of the problem? Real estate interests have sucked in advocates for the poor in their YIMBY, that's Yes in My Backyard, campaigns. Their mission is often to bulldoze through the zoning laws that ensure a neighborhood's quality of life. Many residents in America's homeless encampments cannot afford anything. New units might provide rent relief for some working-class tenants down on their luck. Others have problems that go beyond matters of supply and demand. YIMBY schemes can get pretty outrageous. 
a developer in New York City recently punched through local zoning laws to build an 80-story billionaire's skyscraper near Manhattan's staid Sutton Place. The area was already full of 20-story apartment buildings, but this guy got permission to break through the height limits in part by offering to create some, quote, affordable apartments, which happened to be miles away in Queens. In the meantime, he displaced about 80 families, most of whom lived in the old walk-ups that, walk-ups rather, that actually did provide housing at working-class rents. Often gone, too, on such projects are the little street-level shops, the florists and the shoe repairs, which preserve a sense of place. Conservatives frequently tout Houston as a model for affordable housing, crediting its lax zoning laws. The larger reason is that Houston is surrounded by Texas. It can spread out into the prairies and gently rolling hills. San Francisco is surrounded on three sides by water. What happens in this country when people feel priced out of neighborhoods is that they create new neighborhoods. High rents in Manhattan sent younger workers into neglected parts of Brooklyn that have since been revived. Gen Z, meanwhile, is reportedly looking at smaller cities where they can find more space at less cost. The destinations include Oklahoma City, uh, Birmingham, Alabama, Indianapolis, Cincinnati, and Louisville, Kentucky. That trend should take pressure off of the very expensive big cities while breathing new life into some very pleasant metros with fine housing stock, places that had that earlier generations had bypassed. In the suburbs, single-family homes have been built on large lots, originally intended to keep out poor people. And some zoning rules that forbid duplexes make little sense. Converting a garage into a granny apartment should not be a problem. Good arguments can be made for filling in some low-density areas especially near public transportation. But it does not follow that suburbs must submit to any new tower that destroys the small-town feel of their downtowns. Building booms can destroy the historic structures that make a place special. This is all happening all over the world. In Cairo, for example, working-class neighborhoods are being bulldozed and replaced by concrete high-rises. If you were being invaded... All what you'd care about is your monuments, your trees, your history, your culture, said Magdou Saker, an Egyptian architect and urbanist. He continues, and now it's all being destroyed without any reason, without any explanation. Back in the U.S., uh, back in the U.S. housing market, rent increases have moderated as of late to the point where Economists predict that housing should soon bring the inflation numbers down. Falling interest rates are lowering the cost of buying a house. New construction and incentives for some owners to fix up old spaces are indeed adding to supply. So let's not level neighborhoods in the interest of massive projects. Some ways to address the cost of housing will involve private decisions. Some may involve public subsidies. They certainly should not require handling our main streets to the real estate barons. And that was from Froma Harrop, who lives in New York City. And a little time for sports, local sports, high school wrestling. Osage Sr. takes on a new philosophy. 
Winning a lot had never been good enough for Anders Kittleson. For his first three seasons in high school wrestling, one at Crestwood of Cresco and the last two at Osage, this Green Devil senior was not only consumed with winning, but winning by a more dominant effort than his previous. And if he didn't succeed in that drive, it ate him up internally. Therefore, after Kittleson, for the second time in his career, took second at the traditional state championships last February, he and Osage head coach Brent Jennings had a long philosophical conversation. We talked a lot about making small steps, Jennings said. He put so much pressure on himself to win big, and if things didn't go that way, that pressure mounted. I told him it's time to put that aside, focusing on competing and have some fun. He's a senior. I said you need to have a little fun while you're here, making him understand that this is his last go-round in high school and that he needs to enjoy it a little bit. A state runner-up at 106 as a freshman at Crestwood, Kittleson has stacked on a fourth-place finish as a sophomore and last year lost 6-0 to future Iowa wrestler Cale Peterson of Greene County. He's lost less than 10 times in his career, while winning more than 130 times. In order to reach his goals and climb the podium one step higher, he admits he needed to reevaluate his approach. The first step was moving away from Seabolt Wrestling Academy to Immortal Wrestling in Waterloo. I did have a little bit of a philosophy change, not about winning and losing, but all about evolving and getting better, he said. Learning from every match, whether I go out and get a pin or if I lose, it doesn't matter, he said. This big philosophy change has helped a lot, and it happened after I switched clubs. To date, the results have been good. He's off to a 19-0 start and ranked number one at 150 pounds in Class 2A. Whether he stays at 150 is one question that remains for Kettleson heading into winter break. I'm actually thinking about making the descent to 144, he said at the Battle of Waterloo last week. I don't know if you'll see me at 50 this whole season. We will see. I feel good. I don't feel big. I don't feel small. I think there's a little bit of room to lean out a bit, and that is going into the decision. I'm playing around with it, and we'll see what happens. One decision that is out of the way is where Kettleson will wrestle in college. In September, he announced that he will wrestle at the Air Force Academy. I just think the opportunities it's going to give me after wrestling, college is done. Wrestling and college are done, he said. There were other places I could have gone, but it felt like home and the environment that was going to put me in the best position to succeed after college. He said he's always wanted to be an orthopedic surgeon, and that's one avenue he's considering. He talked of the great engineering school at the Air Force. I'm a tactical, hands-on learner, he said. There is the Space Force, a lot of variety, lots of options, so I'm not counting anything out. Kettleson said another factor is that he has a lot of aunts, uncles, and cousins in the Denver area. So while staying close to home for college never really factored into his decision, he did like the fact that he would have lots of family nearby. That's all the time we have today for the reading of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier for Tuesday, December 26, 2023. I've been your reader, Mary Francis. You can catch this and other local programs on our website as podcasts, and that's at iowaradioreading.org. Have a great day.